I like my music as over the top and melodramatic as possible. I'm not someone who likes like music that's like chill music, like mm-hmm. background music. I need it to be like dramatic. And so this is perfect. This song is pure melodrama. And so that's what I love about it. It does not, it is basically like all the things that people say about her, like, oh, she's so over the top. She's just like waving scarves around and leotards. Like that is this song and she's owning it. And it's fabulous. to discuss this song this week is somebody you will remember from quite a few other episodes this season and it's always a blast talking to her. She was with me for the Lionheart album introduction episode, the wow, wow, wow unbelievable episode. Full House and Cash Cut from Baghdad and now from Brooklyn, New York, we get to talk with Zoe P all about the last song from the album portion of this season. Hammer Horror. When she and I started talking about Kate back in October, she said this was one of her absolute favorite songs. So I went, okay, I'm putting you down for this one. And so here she is. Here's OEP. So Hammer Horror. Yes, one of my favorite Kate Bush songs of all time. And it's not in a top 10 for me, but it is definitely an honorable mention. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably top 10. Yes, I would say definitely top 10 for me. Just the melodrama. I just, I like my music as over the top and melodramatic as possible. I'm not someone who likes like music that's like chill music, like mm-hmm. background music. I need it to be like dramatic and so this is perfect. This song is pure melodrama. And so that's what I love about it. It does not, it is basically like all the things that people say about her, like, oh, she's so over the top. She's just like waving scarves around and leotards. Like that is this song and she's owning it. And it's fabulous. Indeed. And so can be. Oh, uh, I, I, I see what, what do you mean? Like this song, like so many other songs on on Lionheart is like a movie in itself. It's like a yeah. movie put to song, which is funny given the or title, Hammer Horror, you know? 
Yeah, and the t- the title's so weird because I know you were going to talk about this, but so because Hammer Studios is a is a big British well was a big British horror film studio, and so I will never understand why she called the song Hammer Horror because she's explicitly said the song is not about Hammer Studios, and mm-hmm. also in the song she's describing a stage play, so that's a very interesting. I mean, it's a it's a good title. It's like a catchy thing to say. So I get that, but it's a, I've never understood why she did it. Me neither. Yeah, <laughs> it's also interesting because like it's people always like, oh, you know, wondering why she didn't break through in America. One reason could be like a lot of her references are very English, mm-hmm. and Hammer Studios is a very English reference. Um, like most American people don't know about it. I just do because I love lesbian vampire movies, and one of the best is called The Vampire Lovers, which is a Hammer Studios film. So that's, but like, it's, so that's the kind of thing where like, you're listening to it and you, as an American, you'd be like, what does she mean? Hammer horror. But a British person listening to it in 1978 would know exact would get the reference completely. Definitely. And it's also kind of like a returning to the, uh, the haunting and ghosts Mm -hmm. thing that she had going on in Wuthering Heights. Yeah. For, I think the first time since then and it's interesting because when we will talk later about like how this song fared as a single mm-hmm. but i always wonder if she chose this was the first single off lineheart and didn't chart very well and yeah. i'm not surprised because it's a very eccentric song it's not like Wuthering heights even though it's deeply eccentric has more is, ho- is more hooky it's more hooky yeah um this is more of a meandering melody and so i and it's even like the and like the actual music as opposed to the vocals was probably even more over the top and while well, it can't be than Wuthering Heights. So um, I wonder if her or the studio, whoever made the decision, was like, well, it's about ghosts and hauntings, and that works with Wuthering Heights, so we'll it'll work for this. Yeah, but it is like it doesn't necessarily have the big hook of like Wuthering Heights where you hear those, hear that opening piano and it sounds almost like mm-hmm. icicles or something like that. And this doesn't well, really I love the opening of Hammer Heart. I do I love the, ha- yeah, I do love the opening too. Cause it, it's like, it, it's, it's it got it's these weird like minor and major chords against each other mm-hmm. that kind of set this atmosphere of like tension and okay, there's something going on here. It's, so tense yeah but it doesn't yeah it doesn't have that like core even though it does have a chorus it's it's not like it's not it's definitely not as catchy as he you know he's cliff it's me as kathy i've come home yeah it's so and just and also in terms of like the way the verses the verses aren't as um aren't as like catch just immediately catchy either like this is a song where like with Wuthering heights is here and it gets stuff in your head i feel like this you have to hear it a few times where it gets stuff in your head yeah Yeah, was released though as the like we said it was the uh, lead single for Lionheart on October twenty seventh, nineteen seventy eight. Was released and mm-hmm. only got to number forty four. <laughs> and uh, you know, only reached number forty four in the UK, but it went to number ten yeah. in Ireland, number seventeen in Australia, oh. which explains why she did that countdown show with Leif Garrett. Yeah. Uh, 
that we'll we'll talk about later because oh my gosh it's yeah so funny because oh my god number 25 but, in the netherlands yeah. number 21 in in new zealand number 35 in spain and that's about the only places where the song even charted it didn't even chart in the u.s well good for ireland good yeah. for ireland <laughs> so it's a top 10 hit in ireland the irish loved it but the uk is not so much <laughs> i mean i think it's just it's it's so wild and over, I mean Wuthering Heights is also so wild and over the top but this is almost well I remember the first time ever I played it for my mom once I showed a video and she said this is basically opera isn't it yeah so maybe it's something like that I don't know but I think that like, if she had released Wow as the first single like yeah, that probably would have been more successful it's also interesting because most people never release the final song in an album as a first single so that's an interesting choice too yeah, that is true. A lot of people don't. Because people yeah. go, oh, we want to hear the lead single, and so we're going to put it up front so that, hey, mm-hmm. you'll have a reason to buy the album. Hey. Yeah, well, she learned her lesson. Well, oh, no. Well, actually, she learned her lesson with her next album, with the Bushka, but actually, she, the lead single off of her third album, Never Forever, was Breathing, which is the last album, the last track on that album. That is so true. So the the first track on that album, then was the second single and was an enormous hit. So, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, This Woman's Work was the last track on uh, The Sensual World, and that was released as a single. I think, but I think the title track was released as a first single. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the Rubber Band Girl was the first, was the lead single <laughs> from, you know, The Red Shoes. <laughs> Sorry, and... last week said that title, because I have feelings on that song. Oh, Rubber <laughs> Band <laughs> So anyway, back to Hammer Horror. Um, yeah. So yeah, it it was. Oh, and then uh, also it was. It's worth noting that the song was uh, written when she was a teenager. So this is one of those beat yeah. Kathy demos. Mm-hmm. And I know. Well, we can talk about later the uh, the differences between the uh, full recorded version and the demo version, of course. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this was one of those written when she was a teenager. They went, hey, we need new songs and. Hey, let's go use this one. Hey. Well, I mean, she had written over 100 by the time that she was signed at age 16. So she had a full backlog. Although she still should have used something else instead of in the warm room. So I'm yeah. so bitter about that. And room and room for the lights and kick inside. So. And I, yeah. yep. I mean, we've talked about that. I, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what it's about. So it's it's an actor. It sounds like it's an actor who gets to play the lead in uh, sounds like the Hunchback in Notre Dame because she makes little yeah, puns with you know, Hunchback. And uh, after the original mm-hmm. actor, a friend dies in an accident on the film set, and the character narrator is guilt ridden by his friend's death, and he's haunted by the ghost of the jealous original actor. Ooh. Oh, film set. I thought she. I thought for some reason I thought it was meant to be a theatrical production. I'm not sure because when I look at the lyrics, I kind of I interpret it as like um as a film set. Oh, interesting. But that I that would make wrong. Hammer Horror make more. Like, that would make the connection to Hammer Studios more direct. Yeah. But I, I always when I read the lyrics, I think of the theater. It's like I don't know for some reason because there's something about waiting in the there's some, I think it's something about waiting in the wings. I don't know. See, so you stood in the bell tower, but now you're gone. So who knows all the sights of Notre Dame. 
They've got the stars yeah. for the gallant hearts. I'm the replacement for your part, but all I want to do is forget you, friend. I uh, I assumed that it was probably like a like a film because of the Hammer Horror oh, reference, okay. but yeah, but I could be wrong. That makes more sense then. Yeah, I mean that makes more sense then. And they have filmed. They've done many film adaptations of uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, I think Hammer has. Hammer's known for their Dracula interpretations and their vampire movies. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they did all the Christopher Lee uh, Dracula movies. Mm-hmm. And there is. Yeah, it says you. Yeah, he says you wrote this, that the song was inspired by seeing James Cagney playing the part of Lon Chaney playing the hunchback. He was an actor in an actor, rather like Chinese boxes, and that's what I was trying to create. Make so that's something that was part of her inspiration too. So that's interesting. Yeah, the song is not about as many think hammer horror films. It's about an actor and his friend. Mm-hmm. His friend is playing the lead in a production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, a part he's been reading all his life, waiting for the chance to play it. He's finally got the big break he always wanted, and he's the star. After many rehearsals, he dies accidentally, and the friend is asked to take the role over, which, because his own career is at stake, is he does. The dead man comes back to haunt him because he doesn't want him to have the part, believing he's taken away the only chance he ever wanted in life. And the actor is saying, leave me alone because it wasn't my fault. I have to take this part, but I'm wondering if it's the right thing to do because the ghost is not going to leave me alone. It is really freaking me out. Every time I look around a corner, he's there. He never disappears. And, you know, the song was inspired by seeing James Cagney playing the part of Lon Chaney playing the hunchback. He was an actor and an actor and actor. Like you were saying, that's what he was trying to create. And that's yeah. from uh, the Kate Bush Club newsletter number three from, of course, Gaffa.org because they have all sorts yeah. of stuff. And that's- yeah, and that's such a complex narrative because the kind of thing where when you hear the song, as I said earlier, it sounds kind of like pure vocal gymnastics and operatic. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to actually know what she's... And this is for a lot of her early work. A lot of times you don't really... It's hard to know what she's actually saying. And oh, like, yeah. There could be a whole other podcast on misheard Kate Bush lyrics. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you kind of have to Google the lyrics to know exactly what the story is and exactly what words she's saying because when you hear it I think it just kind of such an over especially for the first few times it's just an overwhelming sonic experience that it's hard to take in the lyrics at least for me because you're just like whoa her voice is going all over the place and it's hard to focus on what she's actually saying especially because mm-hmm. her voice going all over the place makes it hard to decipher what she's saying oh yeah but so that is like that's a whole short story in itself but it definitely mm-hmm. took me a while to figure that out I for a while I thought she was just singing pretty wildly about something spooky. Yeah, I kind of I honestly I thought so too. I didn't realize that she was saying they've got the stars for the gallant hearts. I don't even know yeah, what I thought part. she was saying. Yeah, there, I always thought she had the galaxy stars. That's what I always thought she said. I don't know, but yeah, it's really there. It's this this one in particular. It's kind of hard to decipher what she's saying, and it just is so operatic. And I think at that part where she's singing, they've got the stars for the gallant hearts. I'm the replacement for your part. I know that there's another vocal part under there. And I was listening to it again today to try and decipher what the hell she was saying. And I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to kind of give up and just, oh, this is just pretty oh, you little mean, like the background. You mean like yeah. the backing vocal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well she, does, well, she does that thing in the backing vocal that she has a lot where the backing vocal is just making like chirping noises, basically. Yeah. So that makes it extra hard to figure out what she's saying in the lead vocal because you're kind of distracted by the backing vocal. But that, but I love that. I love that she's mm-hmm. just piling everything on. And that's what so many people hate about her early work in Lionheart. Yeah. 
because you don't get a lot of that kind of uh, like counter melody background vocal stuff in a lot of, uh, you know, in a lot of music. You really don't. No, her. Yeah, her background vocals on her first two albums are like telling their whole other story or telling a whole other story. They're always they yeah. tend to be kind of even like discordant and seemingly not even attached, especially on the kick inside on kite and moving and Lamore looks something like you if you play those songs really loud the back and vocals are doing basically doing their own thing completely mm-hmm. um i mean the only other like, singer random other noises and the only other singer i know of who really does that kind of stuff is um one of my favorites charlotte martin who is also very influenced by kate bush that she does in her mm-hmm. in her song she all often has like a completely different melody underneath the lead vocal and you're kind of, and like yeah. with her, you have trouble understanding what she's saying too. But she well, I probably... think it's fascinating because it shows how Kate Bush, for her, the voice mm-hmm. is an instrument, as opposed to with most singers, it's just what they're using to express their words. For her, it's the part. It's what part of what she uses to create the sonic landscape. Quite yeah. a few people have said a lot about this song. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, uh, this is from Melody Maker, the article Enigma Variations from November 1978 from Gaffa. They said, Hammer Horror, the single, is most impressive for the way it seems to tie in so many of the finer points of the first album and project them through one epic song. Yeah, epic is a perfect way to describe it. It's so yeah. epic. From the opening dramatic chord, <laughs> final gong, it's just pure drama and never lets up. Mm-hmm. And that's your thing. Like, it's my kind of thing. This is your song. Yep. And then from... It's love or hate. And then from... Uh, this was from a chronology of Kate Bush's career from gaffa.org. On October 11th, 1978... From completing the final mix of the album, Kate is straight on to a plane for Australia where she is to preside with that month's teen pop sensation Leif Garrett over the 10th annual TV week King of Pop Awards before a live audience of 1,000 in a circus tent and a television audience of 2 million on the Nine Network. The next day, Kate also performs live on the television program Countdown, debuting the routine for Hammer Horror devised in her hotel room. Hammer Horror is planned as the first single from the new album. And then on October 17th, 1978, Kate moves on to New Zealand, specifically Christchurch, for a television special. There she again performs Hammer Horror. And we'll, we're definitely going to talk about that special. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I just have to wonder how big how big was that hotel room where she developed? Because, like, this dance it routine goes, requires yeah. a lot of space. I know this because I, I've actually tried to do it with an ex-partner of mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it took <laughs> up a lot of space. Like, I... I had my partner be the like the the male figure and try to like, do with all the lifts and stuff and lifting me up and I was I mean I have to be Kate of course but um <laughs> and it yeah it takes you need a lot of space to think of that routine so I'm like I'm wondering at the size of that hotel room I know especially if you're, you're traveling around a lot of hotel rooms are not that big <laughs> yeah seriously. And so, yeah, we're, uh, I think when we get to the, uh, the TV appearances and we'll talk about the, uh, yeah. that, the TV appearance of her and, you know, the, uh, flavor of the month there. Um, yeah. John Peel. Other review. Yeah. yeah. So John Peel said, quote, I didn't like the album at all and I'm not too enthused with this either. He said that on radio well, one's table, you, round Peel. table. Yeah. It's not for you, dude. Uh, it's not for you. 
Uh, Paul, Paul Gambaccini says, it doesn't grab me immediately as the man with the child in his eyes. That's a, um, that's a really weird song to compare this one yeah. to. I would think to compare. I think like it's the the one you compare it to is Wuthering Heights in terms of the melodrama and the themes and the vocals. Yeah, like the Man for Child is pretty much her most chill song up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been a pretty vocal fan and champion of hers, so I'll give him a pass. Uh, Record Mirror's Ronnie Gurr, he said, quote, Kate keeps up the formula and doesn't upset the fans, dot, dot, dot. Sounds like Joni Mitchell popping tabs with the LSO um, formula song. What? This is is just like, that's just every male music critic, like, not allowing any female artist to, like, be themselves. Like, he has Mm. to throw a Joni Mitchell comparison. Does this sound, this sounds nothing like Joni Mitchell. Uh, It does sound like someone popping tabs with the LSO. With, but with not Joni Mitchell. Orchestra. But yeah, not Joni Mitchell. It just, it just shows the laziness of this male-dominated music critic world. Yeah, to just and... be like, yes, well, who can we think of? Joni Mitchell. Throw that comparison in. They're like, oh, Joni Mitchell. She's this other singer who sings kind of high. Kate Bush sings high. Mm-hmm. Hey, they're the same, man. Uh, no, not really. Exactly. <laughs> no. They're both artsy. Ha ha. Yeah. Uh, in NME, uh, Tony Parsons, he wrote, quote, Ominous post-ELO orchestration with the unrequited lust of a broken affair viewed as living dead love bites back in yeah, a classic what? 50s British celluloid, a real nail-biter, hypnotic, and disconcerting. Uh, broken affair? Love affair? What? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that might be, like, as we were saying, he probably maybe had no clue what she was saying. But he just kind of, like, took the tidbits of lyrics that he could find. and But also back then when you had albums you had like the sleeves with the lyrics so you yeah know. but but it, yes interesting in the re- the review you mentioned earlier about kate keeps up the formula and doesn't upset the fans because mm-hmm. i think hammer horror has a melodrama intention that i don't think any of the songs from the inside did like it comes the closest to wuthering heights but it's still tenser because the narrator of wuthering heights is the ghost haunting someone and here it's this person being haunted Mm-hmm. So there's so much, there's the paranoia and fear, which really comes across in the musical arrangement and her vocal style. So I, I get what he means in, in the formula in terms of like a offbeat short story type song. But I think that this is very different. Like this would feel very out of place if I heard it on the kick inside. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. got a real lush, actually, it's got a real lush quality to it that yeah. fits that definitely fits in better with the Lionheart songs because I don't to, to mm-hmm. me listening to all all of Lionheart including this song I feel like there's I, I don't want to say there's really more strings in there it's just there's like this more like mm-hmm. if, if the more backgrounds symphony, yeah. feel richer to me yeah I agree they probably and, a bigger budget also yeah and even though you know at the time you know, she really wanted to, I I think the impression I get from reading like the story behind this album and including the song is that she wanted to use her own band for the songs, but mm-hmm. the, the producer, Andrew Powell was like, no, we want, I yeah. need to use my guys because they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah. I think was really frustrated that, Hey, wait a minute, I want to do a little more of my own thing. And well, all I can really do is go, Hey, Andrew Powell, um, I'm kind of thinking yeah. I want to do this kind of stuff. Can we kind of think about doing this? You know? And she was dating her bass player. She's like, I want to be my boyfriend in the studio. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> 
In fact, um, I actually found this really cool quote. I, um, I went through the, uh, the digital version of Under the Ivy, which I bought a couple months ago when I started this project oh, yeah. because it would just be so much easier to, to search for quotes that, um, yeah, she actually did a demo of this with the guys from the KT Bush band and they, mm-hmm. uh, Quote, when they recorded the demo for Hammer Horror at the farm, Bush insisted that she needed to be genuinely frightened in order to get into the role. Patty had the idea of blacking out the studio. Yep, and having all these strange things going on outside, says Bath, Brian Bath. She started singing and Patty threw some matches past the windows and we made some ghost noises and she went, ah! She actually (laughs) lost her voice. She couldn't sing anymore. She came back a couple days later to sing it again, unquote. By now, her band understood and indeed were rather devoted to her eccentricities. She'd always have a very descriptive or illustrative version of how a song should be, says says Bath. She'd say, I want it to be mysterious sounding or something like that, unquote. Pretending to be a ghoul in a blacked out studio was not, it's safe to say, the way that Andrew Powell preferred to work. However, to his credit, he listened to her ideas and agreed to at least give them a try, but he had little real enthusiasm for the idea of using her group. Quote, Cave really wanted her band very strongly, and I thought the easiest way to resolve something is to try both sides, which is basically what happened, he says. And that's from Under the Ivy. Yeah. So... Yes, interesting because that shows why she then went on to produce her own work so moving forward because mm-hmm. she had, and this is, I've heard this about people working the kick inside too, saying that she basically came in with like everything about her songs plans and everything in mind about how she wanted them to be. So it's like, then she's like, well, then I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> So kind of our, per- our personal thoughts on the song, we kind of talked about already, like for me, it's not an mm-hmm. absolute top 10 favorite, but it is a very honorable mention. It is high up there for me. And I hear this and I think of when I was listening to it going on the plane to France in 2006, because mm, I first, cool. I bought this out, I bought just this song on iTunes and it was a big deal that there was even Kate Bush on iTunes. And so mm-hmm. I hear it and I, I, I am reminded of being on the plane like my first transatlantic flight and I was listening to Kate Bush. Kate Bush was right there with me. Mm-hmm. So that's kind wow, of, that's cool. And uh, that, that's the, my I, best Kate, even though it isn't uh hammer horror related is a Kate Bush flight recommendation. Listen to hello earth when you're landing. Just saying Ooh. it's magical. Oh, I it's need to corny. It's so literal, but <laughs> that, that was a very amazing, that was a very amazing Kate Bush flying experience for me. I'm definitely going to do that next time. <laughs> yeah. But that's cool. You have that association with this song going to France for sure. And, and for just me, the whole like of Lionheart, story. like the whole of Lionheart, mm-hmm. like I bought it when I was, it was one of the first things I bought when I got to France. I went to the FNAC and I got this and never forever. And I listened mm. to those albums, like sitting on my bed, looking, looking out the window and at the, uh at the the town and the winter sky changing and it, it was it i i hear lionheart and i'm like back to being 21 sitting in france like listening to this on my that's cd player cool. and yeah wasn't so it recorded in france and yeah funny enough yeah this was recorded in in actually in the south of france even though i was um 
I was in Tours, which is in um, like kind of the middle-ish, not quite middle-ish part of France. It's the part of France where you, you see a lot of castles. It's known for their castles. Ooh, nice. I know. So Very Kate Bush-ish. Indeed, it was. I got to be around all sorts. I got to go in all sorts of castles, and I would always think like, ooh, all the people that have lived here, and ooh, ghosts. So that's my personal connection kind of to Hammer Horror. Is with, I, I reminded of being in France, and that's part of why I love it, because it was a really mm-hmm. cool time for me and i got to yeah. buy you know physical kate bush albums because i couldn't find them in the u.s that is oh this country anyways yeah, yeah. but <laughs> no like i said my per- i connect to it really personally just because it it really speaks to the drama queen in me and it speaks to like why why this album means a lot to me it's just mm-hmm. so over the top and queer friendly and i and for me the personal association is that i heard it while watching the music video so I can't unlink the two, really. And I wonder if my experience of it would be different if I just had heard the song without seeing the music video first. Because, like, when I hear it, I am, I watch the video in my head. Because the video, which we'll talk about later, is so wild mm-hmm. and so memorable and also completely owns my heart because it is the campiest, most ridiculous, best thing ever. <laughs> and, like, so... And, like, my entire visual aesthetic is that video. Um but I always wonder, so I have a very per- like deep connection to it because I also have such a deep connection to the video. Um, but I wonder if my, how I'd feel about it had I, I mean, I, I would still love it, but it's, I'm kind of bummed out that I didn't just hear it on its own first and get to appreciate it as a song first. Yeah, for me, when I first heard it, like, it was like, I. it was not like much I'd ever heard before. And I honestly, no, I don't no. know why I just bought that one song instead of the full album. I think because at that point, I, I was of the mindset that, oh, on iTunes, I can just cherry pick whatever songs I want. And, <laughs> oh, this song sounds really cool. I'll just get this one to try it. I think because, oh, I know why I didn't get the whole album. It's because I had heard so much, dis- so many so many disparaging remarks about the album mm. that went oh i'm not sure if i'm gonna like this i'll just get the one song and then I ended up loving it <laughs> i think it was yeah. my top one of my um, most played songs at one point in one of my old itunes libraries like i've listened to yeah. it so much and for me not i watched the video much later i think i didn't watch the video until oh my god like maybe or youtube or something i can't remember how i first saw it but yeah for me hearing like i had the opposite experience of you like i had i was just going off the song alone and i was like whoa this is not like anything i've ever heard before whoa this is cool there's really very (laughs) few songs in the world that they're like this i mean it's i'm not i can't imagine so many songs on the video where you're just like what is this oh my god Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm Yeah, because that video, that video is, wow. I can't Mm -hmm. wait till we get to talk about the video later on, because, yeah, (laughs) wow. And not, not wow, wrong song, but it is wow. wow. wow, unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. And, and definitely, it is a really good, it is a great ending to the album. Like, it's interesting you say that. I've always, it's interesting, because it's such, to me, it's so climactic. It's almost like unusual. Like it is a perfect ending because it ends with the gong, which like closes mm-hmm. out the album. But at the same time, with most, I think like majority of albums I hear, including some of hers, you'll have a 
like the second to last song is the climax and then the last one kind of brings it down like for example in hounds of love hello earth is such a climax and then more the morning fog is like the come the catharsis mm-hmm. so it's interesting how she ends it on pretty much the most tense and dramatic note possible so it, it is the climax then you end on that climax and so for me and also because a short album in general you know it ends i'm like that's it like can i have some more mm-hmm. but i do like the 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 ending with the gong it like it feels like okay mm-hmm. boom we've come to the end boom. yeah it's just, i feel like it's the kind of thing where like you're listening to it in the dark or like you're listening to it in general and it ends you just kind of like sit for a few minutes in silence and like absorb what you just heard And I, as with most of her, her early stuff, I love that. I love how theatrical the vocal melody is. It it swoops up and down with the emotions yeah. of the singer. It's also in one of my favorite keys, G flat major or F sharp major. I love that. I love that key. Has uses all the mm. black keys on the keyboard. It's awesome. And it also continues her kind of her penchant for writing about rather dark themes. Yeah. Um, I mean, she grew up listening to folk music where it's not exactly, you know, family friendly PG <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah, not folk music like, like, uh, what's like, what's that? We are, this land is my land. More folk music like the ballad of Lizzie Wan, brother cuts his sister's head off. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that light. Yeah, definitely. Nice, light, family friendly entertainment. I mean, she, yeah. I've, I've got a hunch that you're following to get your own back on me. I know. Okay, so. Well, she also grew up watching all these, like, probably even though the song wasn't inspired by Hammer Studios, she probably like, saw a lot of their films on TV and saw a lot. Like, mm-hmm. well, just a lot. And on British TV, there's a lot of dark, weird stuff. But it's, the whole song is about somebody trying to get revenge. And mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people have said that, the the line I've got a hunch that you're following to get your own back on me is a clunker. They're like, oh, that's such a clunker. I think it's clever. Yeah, I never heard anyone say that. I know. Um, mostly from under. I think in under the ivy, he mentioned. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he he's he calls it kind of a bad pun, and I'm like, mm, I like yeah. it though. Yeah, I think I, it's good. He also doesn't like, but he also, no offense to Dan Thompson, he also doesn't like the Christmas special, which is the best thing of all time. So I don't, <laughs> you know, we don't have to agree with everything he says. Indeed. And that's okay. No, we don't have to agree all the time. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I know it's, I think it's kind of catchy. Not, not definitely not catchy in the way that say Wuthering Heights is, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, or even wow. Yeah. It's not quite catchy like those two songs, but I like it. <laughs> It was enough me to too. hook me into the album and go, hey, let me explore more of this stuff here. Yeah, I mean, it's my favorite on the album, one of my favorites, apparently top 10 ever. But it's not something where I, if I hadn't known that it was a single, I would not have expected it to have been a single because it's just so out there. Yeah. I don't even know. On a, I, I can't think of what other songs from Lionheart 
could have even been a first single except maybe Wow. Yeah, or like Symphony in Blue, although that's more convent in terms of the melody, it's more conventional. Mm-hmm. I think they just, you know, maybe I wrote either her or her studio bosses just maybe were like, well, ghost, melodrama, worked the first time, gonna do it again. But, yeah. Yeah, I feel like actually with Lionheart, Soul of Alan too, where none of them are really an obvious single at all. I mean, like, Don't Push Your Foot on the Heartbreak is like, might be because it's poppy, but like it also just is a weaker song in the album, so it wouldn't be a good idea to put it as a single. Yeah, and that one doesn't really, that one doesn't really stick out to me as much. Uh, don't push your front it's on the kind of, Yeah, it's kind of like this album's James and the Cold Gun, where they're like, okay, we need a rock song in here. Mm-hmm. Um, which is funny because they pushed that as the first single for the James and the Cold Gun is the first single for Kick Inside. So yeah, we'll never know whether that choice to make this the single as her in the studios but either way it's a phenomenal song that as you mm-hmm. said just, just doesn't really sound like any other song out there no yeah that's why when people like compare like i mean lord's last album was called melodrama but i'm like when people compare them like you think that's melodrama take a listen to this <laughs> <laughs> indeed <laughs> So, should I talk about live performances, including this yeah. uh, Leif Garrett appearance? Oh, my goodness. There's oh, yeah. a name people haven't heard in a while, and probably nobody in my generation, uh, not many people in our generation have really heard of, really. <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm like a weirdo, because I just know all like things that only older people know. But yeah, it's interesting, because so, cause in Australia, if you go on YouTube, hopefully don't take it down now that I'm revealing it, it's out there. If you just Google Kate Bush, Leif Garrett, well, and if you... This probably people don't know how to spell his name now. It's L-E-I-F. It's his first name, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, or like Kate Bush, Hammer Horror, Australia. Because um, there's two versions on YouTube. There's one that only has a performance, but one with the interview and the performance. Mm-hmm. So basically, she's being interviewed with Leif Garrett together by this very kind of like brash Australian guy. Oh, yeah. And it's, so for context, you know, I was not alive then, but I know context. Um, he was the teen idol of the day. He mm-hmm. was like the, like what the Jonas Brothers were 10 years ago. You know, like mm-hmm. he was every, he was like the young Leonardo, the Leonardo DiCaprio of 1997. Um, and then meanwhile, she was very much seen as probably someone who's a flash in the pan or one hit wonder of Wuthering Heights because Wuthering Heights was so weird that a lot of people in the music industry assumed, well, that's a one-off. But it's interesting because in hindsight, he actually ended up being the flash mm-hmm. in the plan, whereas she became the icon, the staying power. Yep. So it's just kind of like the most surreal pairing of 70s icons because they each signify totally different things. Like he signifies like just like teen idol stuff and she like signifies this whole serious artist thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really funny. And then I also love the I love seeing I love the version that has the interview and the performance because in the interview she's very clearly a 20 a 20 year old she is you know she you can see she's so small um like when she stands next to everyone she's like a head shorter than everyone and she's very kind of like yeah i'm happy to be here but like very like you're not timid just not she's you know she's a normal teenage girl pretty much and then when you see her perform she turns into drag queen mm-hmm. so it's just, <laughs> it's such a 180 like that so fascinating to watch the interview and the performance together and see her completely switch like 
And another, and we, I will talk about this more in the video, but I think there are a lot of parallels in her and Beyonce. And that's one of the parallels I see is that like Beyonce saying, Oh, when I go on stage, it becomes Sasha Fierce. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's this thing where Kate Bush becomes, goes on stage and just becomes a whole other person. Yeah. And she says that herself. Yeah. Hello, I met with Life Garrett uh, with his new single, I Was Made for Dancing, with those, uh, with those lovely ladies, no wonder. Have we got a show for you? This, is going, this show tonight is going to make Ben-Hur look like a B-grade movie. And to start it off, I have one of the loveliest ladies on the rock scene, international rock scene, uh, in the world today, Miss Kate Bush. Hi. Big cheer. <laughs> We've got a great show coming up. Uh, but I'd like you to meet someone. You probably met him last night. He is the heartthrob of like, every girl in this country, Mr. Lifeguard. Can you know again? Yes. Did you enjoy last night? Yes, I did. It was a very good night, wasn't it? It was a good show. You were great last night. You both were. Thank you. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Oh, it's great. Have you ever done anything like that before? No. I mean, the audience and Magic Smooth, they were just so excited, you know? It's just incredible. And were you surprised with that sort of, all those people going like that? Uh, yeah. What about those girls sleeping in a telephone box outside your hotel? Um, Oh, my goodness (laughs) me. Is it true you brought them down coffee in the morning? This lovely lady on, as I said before, I don't know, did you see it in the dress? I mean, oh, yeah, this I is stunning. This. It's an incredible performance. And to everyone at the ABC, I want everyone out there, Channel That's 7, right. Channel 9 and Channel O, to have a look at this because this is great television. Here is Kate Bush That's presenting right. her new single called, like? It's called Hammer Horror. Yoo-hoo! Also, it's interesting, like, listening to the interview between this brash Australian host and Kate Bush. He reminds me, in a way, of Ryan Seacrest, I think, because he has this whole demeanor like, oh, yeah, this show is all about me, and you just happen to be a slight hanger-on. Because he does most of the talking, whereas Kate's just kind of, like, sitting like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, 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 just, like, Mm -hmm. just sitting there chilling off to the side. (laughs) yeah looking like okay am i gonna get to talk then, sometime like, soon and, yeah and then they're all like and lee scared is here mm-hmm. but yeah, that didn't age well so <laughs> and you can almost see why she why kate really doesn't do interviews because i mean most of the time these inner in these early interviews very most of the time I see an interview, the interviewer is like, oh, it's all about me. And yeah. instead of like letting you talk, it's like when we get, oh, God, when we get to Hounds of Love and the, the night flight interview. Mm. Oh, my uh, God. You know, so the, night, the night flight interview deserves its whole episode. It deserves its own episode. And I will host that. With you. you know my obsession with that. Episode, oh, I know you flight. will. <laughs> you know that like that is like I watch it on the regular, like pop in the popcorn like that that interview is like a whole other album essentially mm. like it deserves that much attention the same 
but yeah, but I think with interviewers, a lot of the time, yeah, they do. And it's interesting because she is, it's difficult because she is a lot, she doesn't really like to talk about anything other than her work. So she is kind of a tough interview in a sense, but you can interview her in ways that are respectful of her shyness and her talking her work because there are like I've you, you there are some early interviews with her that are fantastic like with the I mentioned earlier Paul Gambaccini um there's a great interview with him around when the dreaming came out um where he really she talks so much about her artistic process and her vision and so I think that as long as the interviewers took her seriously it went mm. well that's when they started to go off into oh how many boyfriends have you had and blah 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 and she's like okay why are yeah. we talking about my love life what the heck no and yeah, I don't blame like, you. Yeah, yeah. So that was on uh, yeah countdown in Australia aired uh, or was done October second, nineteen seventy eight, and then of course mm-hmm. the tour of life. She performed it on mm-hmm. the tour of life, and it was the only song that she did not sing live. And instead, they left a note on the seat each of the seats in the theater to let the audience know that the song was not going to be sung live. And the, so over the top. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like the yeah, you're right. An intricate, an understatement, definitely. Like that kind of dance routine, you can't do that kind of dance routine and sing at the same time. Like no, and she's being flipped upside down. So yeah, she's being flipped Although upside down not, and sideways and around. Like there is no way that, and especially with your singing high like that, like you you gotta like support your sound, and you can't do that when you're like, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just it, that's so. I, I'm just like when I'm looking at the fact she left notes on the seats. That's a. That's so British. Like, I'm going to be polite and leave a note on every seat <laughs> to know right. that it's just just to let you know that's so British and that's so also like over the top. So that's just so her. I love it. Mm-hmm. But also, it's honestly it seems a little quaint these days because it's expected that if you are going to say a Vegas show, that there's really not going to be any i mean there's going to be very little if any live singing especially if you're going to go see britney spears like she's she's going to be dancing and dancing she's you're not there to see her or hear her sing live like well and speaking of tours i mean the tour of life is what set that whole template it was the first like mm -hmm. elton john said in the bbc documentary the kate bush story that um, that she really set the precedent for all future tours to come because she was the person who was singing, dancing, multimedia experience, spectacle for pop artists who were not doing that before. So mm-hmm. it's just it's so many, like any, everyone from Ariana Grande to Janet Jackson who's sang with a headphone, headset mic and danced while singing, oh, it's Kate Bush, and they don't even realize it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's funny, yeah, it's it's so interesting. Like every, anytime someone is performing on stage and singing and doing a choreographed routine with Mike, Kate Bush actually was the first person to do that. Indeed. Like people, it's like, you'll talk, like when I talk about Kate Bush, people will say like, oh, you're being hyperbolic. You're exaggerating. Like, no, she actually, like the headset microphone was invented for her tour. I'm not being mm-hmm. hyperbolic. It's true. You know? And in fact, like, she had the band on yeah obviously the band was on stage playing or actually no for this song the vocals Mm -hmm. were redone they re she re-recorded the vocals because they needed to um get around the musicians union regulations um this is from under the ivy it says uh Mm -hmm. 
What regulation? Yeah, it says, uh, uh, this was the only song on the set not played or sung live. Instead, Bush and Van Lost, I hope I pronounced his name right, Van Lost is the, uh, yeah. the name of the man who danced with her and also was the choreographer for the tour. Yeah, Anthony Van Lost. Um, he dan- they danced to a newly recorded version of the track. This was deemed necessary to circumnavigate musicians' union regulations and also to give the audience something with at least a whiff of live ambience in order to allow her to perform a routine of which she was very proud. Clad in black, the hooded Van Last slept out to shadow Bush on the choruses, a stark embodiment of both sexual need and a guilty conscience. Very physical, sexual very need. powerful, very flowers from Under the Ivy. Sexual need. Okay, I didn't... I know where that's coming from, but male writer is going to male writer. I've always thought of it as a guilty conscience. But it yeah. is. Yeah, because he's but like, Again, Under the Ivy is still written by a man. So, you know. Yep. That's yeah. That's so, Yeah, the dancer she danced with was the guy uh, who actually helped to choreograph her entire tour. And in mm-hmm. fact, he was a dancer who was hired by the Hammer Horror music video director to uh to dance with her and Mm -hmm. she got along so well with him that they ended up uh she asked him to choreograph the entire tour yeah wow and then he went on to become one of like the top british choreographers he did like cast and all these giant west end productions so and but his career kind of started here which is really interesting yeah van last he's become like the google him he's so well like renowned yeah, Van Last went on to work on a number of high-profile productions, including Chess, My Fair Lady, and Abba's Mamma Mia movie, and is now the now a knight of the realm. At the time, rather more humbly, he was a member of the London Contemporary Dance Theatre, and when not touring, he would often teach evening classes at the school attached to the company. It was from these classes that he recruited Stuart Avon Arnold and Gary Hurst, two young black dancers who would become Bush's principal partners on stage in videos and in studios over the next decade or more. There was perhaps a degree of gentle provocation in her decision to choose at a time when racial divisions in the UK were still pronounced to dance with two black men. Quote, she does think about cultures a lot. Black cultures, Irish culture, Aboriginal culture, says Avon Arnold. She's very aware of color and creed. Yeah, I've always thought she doesn't really get the credit People don't point out that it's kind of radical for the teenage. Also, things are very different in the UK, but in the US, if you're listening to this from the UK, in the, U, in the US, there's a very loaded, loaded um, kind of dynamic about this idea of black men mm-hmm. and white women oh, and yeah. the, the, the myth of the predatory black man. And so for this tiny white girl to be dancing on stage with two black men is actually quite a radical statement. I mean, more. It would probably be more so in America, based on our, our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and even though England has that history as well, it, in America we're more hardcore about. There's there's more about the whole white woman black man stigma. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, but it's interesting because they did become her principal partners. Yeah, throughout this and then in her summer and in her videos. Yeah, and definitely on the on the tour of life, they were the ones dancing with mm-hmm. her and. And Kite and Strange Phenomena and all those other songs where she had male dancers, they were her guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's great because, like, this is for Wow, but I love how for Wow, when she performs it, she basically has these two guys, like, shirtless underneath mm-hmm. her. Like, she's <laughs> commanding them. And she's, she's 20 years I'm just like, this 20-year-old has these men, like, under her thumb. It's great. Oh, yeah. Very badass, man. 
leads us to the music video because yeah, of course how can you topic. not talk about this song and not talk about the video which basically uh, for the tour of life the routine was pretty much the music video but like times 10 because yeah. of the like ridiculous 70s special effects oh my god oh like, yeah especially when just, she moves her hands and things are repeating oh yeah oh all the, <laughs> anyone who fades themselves that often is just the most over-the-top human ever and this is why she's so endearing to me like she like this video her dance routine in it is so ridiculous it's not the most ridiculous one she's ever done and contributes to the image that people have her as like an art school girl twirling and being silly. But the thing is, because she like she has said in so many interviews, the way that she performs in her routine and her dances are what she genuinely believes are best expressing the emotion of the song. So because it's so earnest and she truly believes that having a guy come under her and them doing jazz thing jazz hands together is the movement that will best express the soul of the song, to me that's just super cute and endearing instead of being just silly. And so it really, to me, this video encapsulates, and the song, especially them together, encapsulates who she, her artistic identity as in, in her early years perfectly, which is being ridiculous to the point of being beyond camp. Like, you can't really do Kate Bush parodies because mm-hmm. if you watch a Hammer Horror video, that is a parody. You can't go further than that in terms of outrageousness in camp. Oh, yeah. And so it, it just gets to the point where I think you have to give in to her infectious past. Like, I think when I first watched it, I was just like, what the heck? Like, girl, like, what are you doing? <laughs> but then you just, you watch it over and over. Because, like, basically the way it works is there's, she's dancing, but then this man, male figure with, like, a black, maybe, I guess it's like a stocking or something pulled over his head. It's like, looks like a thing where you're robbing a bank, but without the eyes cut out. Mm-hmm. Um 
he comes he represents the ghost who's creeping up on her and overtaking her and he comes during the chorus and like they start it's hard i can't really describe it you kind of have to watch it but um he he starts like doing movements on like as i said like he they they like he puts his arms under her and they wiggle their fingers together and she does that thing where you like cross your knees and your hands at the same time and he does it with her and it's so corny but it's so and it's like so corny that you have to get in you have to let you have to get into it you know and then he then he starts picking her up and throwing her around and yeah and then it as so and there's it's interesting at the very end of the video he tilts her up after he's been swirling her around everywhere he tilts mm-hmm. her upside down and makes a gesture that he's choking her to death and that's a very dark ending because the the mm-hmm. song does not say the ghost kills the narrator but here we see it happen so that's interesting mm-hmm. but yeah there's also as they mentioned all the fades they're so cheesy mm-hmm. in 70s but like wonderfully <laughs> oh, yeah. so like there's like the main parts are for example like when she'll fling her hands around you'll see like ref- ref- like fades of the hands and then also when she sits onto the chair you see her body like multiplied as she goes into the chair so it's just like she's so over the top but it's just to me completely endearing and this video is just this video is like I mean if you like were to meet me in your life you would understand this video is basically my personal style and aesthetic like her I love her look in this video it's like she's wearing this long gothic black dress with like wild hair and over the top very over the top makeup I just mm-hmm. she just goes a, she goes 110 percent on everything, and I love that about her. And this video, like I of her videos, I, when she's off my favorite, I usually say like a four way tie between this and three others. But this one has a very special place in my heart. Like it's prop. <laughs> like if I had to pick one favorite, it's probably this. Although it's hard not to make it a tie between this sensual world. Um, sat in your lap because that video oh, that is yeah. also like the weirdest video ever but in a different way and um, and, and I said the running up that hill video probably and mm. white dress weathering heights because all the fades that we see here are also done a lot in the white dress weathering heights video yeah and then a lot of music videos of the time too like I, I've seen mm-hmm. them in in some uh, some ABBA videos yeah they do some of those weird fades I don't know what kind of effect that's called if anybody knows what kind of effect what the name of that effect is I that think, would be awesome yeah I, I read about it once i think it's called a fade so that's why i was using that term but it might not mm. be right but it's so it, it seems less like a fade and more like multiplication because what happens is like she'll move her hand and you see like a shot like 10 shadows of her hand follow her hand yeah but it, i'm it's probably something you can I'm easily sad. duplicate now in like iMovie or like final yeah. cut or something like that except people don't do it because it's a cheesy thing from the 70s so but sometimes I like cheesy things from the 70s. Me too. That's why I like this video. Indeed. But, but something else, you don't see it. Like, I'm ne- I don't see it. You don't, would never see it done in the music video today. So it'll be oh, like no. that. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Um, there are several other versions of the song. Um, I mean, there's obviously there's the live version, and that got um, 
that got reproduced for Live at the Hammersmith. The official video was on the official release. It was one of those bootleg ones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and what's interesting is they also used the music video for this as, um, if you haven't watched it and you're a Kate Bush fan, you must. If you look up Kate Bush Nationwide or just Kate Bush Tour of Life documentary on YouTube, um, they use the music video. To, it's a documentary about the making of Tour of Life, and they use mm-hmm. the video to open the documentary, which is interesting. I wonder if they did that because of they because of it being the 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 lead single from the album. Yeah, figuring that oh, That's what I presume. you know, this is the song that people are going to know and and all that. Mm-hmm. So there's the live version, uh, the single version. The only difference is that it emits the sound of the gong at the end of the song. The gong at the end of the song. Here, a little rhyme there. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the demo version that she wrote when she was a teenager. And for that mm-hmm. one, has lots of little lyrical differences. Mm-hmm. Like um, in the first pre-chorus, um, instead of the part about they've got the stars for the gallant hearts and the replacement for your part, they say, or she sings, you knew the girls in the times, you knew the rights and the rhymes, now they're trying to push me into your name. Like completely different there. They're trying to make her, or actually, I think it's supposed to be a male character. This is another example of her taking on their persona. So he is, they're like trying to make him subsumed into someone else's identity. Oh, I never even thought Maybe. of that. Yeah. Um, she said the first line of the song is who stands in the bell tower rather than you stood in the bell tower. Mm-hmm. Um. In the chorus, she says, The first time in my life, the first break of my life where I've let him go. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because the first two lines make sense, but then now I'm like, okay. Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, the last line of the chorus, instead of, I don't know, is this the right thing to do? She says, it's not the right thing to do. So it just goes right yeah, into that. So, then for, so for the regular version, she's just like, he's a bit more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And she makes more of a the question. The narrator wants it more. And there's the the verse about rehearsing in your things. I feel mm-hmm. guilty. I feel guilty. That one that doesn't exist. Um, the bridge instead of the I've I've got a hunch that you're following me to get your own back on me. 
Kate saying, you know my mind and my heart, so you should know I wouldn't take your part. Hmm. Which I find interesting. It, and, yeah, maybe the ghost is more malevolent in the in the because in the final like I can't tell which version the ghost is like crueler in because in the demo it's like, well, you know my heart, you know I wouldn't do this, but you're haunting me anyway. That's not very nice. Yeah. Um <laughs> but yeah, either but I think it comes across because like the rehearsing and your things I feel guilty, it comes across in both versions that the ghost is being a little unfair. Because um, because the person's narrator feels bad, but in the demo, they seem to have a more personal connection of some kind. Because, you know, this one, you're right, like the, in, the, in the, the, the demo version, it feels more like you get more of a sense of a personal connection uh, that the narrator has with the ghost. But mm-hmm. I like, I like the, the, the other, the, the album version because it feels a little more ambiguous. Me too. I love the rehearsing in your things. I feel guilty, like stanza so much. Mm-hmm. Well, more the way she says it or sings it or really like wails it. <laughs> yeah. Rehearsing in your things. I feel guilty. No, it's like rehearsing. It's like, you know, all over the place. <laughs> So we're closing out this episode and Lionheart, we have made it to the end of Lionheart and already like, oh my goodness. Wow. What a project. (laughs) Well, hopefully people who are listening have gained a new appreciation for this really underrated gem. I mean, it's like pretty much every Kate Bush best out to worst album ranking. You'll always see this one at the bottom for reasons that we've discussed through multiple episodes. We've, both seem to think that's deeply unjust mm-hmm. um, and very much tainted by the fact that most the, the music industry is dominated by straight men and straight white men. But I know there's so many people I know, I actually know quite a few people who say I do like Lionheart better than Kick, out, kick Inside. Um, I don't know if I do. I don't think I do. Um, I think I like, I, I don't, yeah, I think it's equal or I, I like this one a little, I think I prefer the Kick Inside, but um but Lionheart speaks to 
especially L- like LGBTQ identified people in a very, in a more direct way than some of her other work. And it, to me, that makes it really powerful. It's really, this album really encapsulates everything that people who hate her hate about her and what people who love her love about her. And so that's like, I feel like this album is such a litmus test for like, like how, how over the top and campy are you of a human being, you know? <laughs> like, and, and, um, but the thing is, I think that the campiness shouldn't be mistaken for silliness mm-hmm. or, um, or not being serious because, but also she, even though she is being serious, she also has a sense of humor. She doesn't like, she can, for example, when there were, when Faith Brown, Tom, a comic from the time used to do parodies of her, she loved them. She wrote Faith Brown a letter saying how much she loved them. And she talked mm-hmm. an interview on TV about how she thought it was so funny. So she, like Kate Bush does have a sense of humor about herself. Um, so Lionheart is just an album that is extremely polarizing because it's so over the top. And where you fall in that divide, I think, kind of says a lot about. I, it doesn't say whether or not you're you're a good person or a bad person, not like that. But it just, I think wherever you fall inside the divide, kind of says a lot about your taste in general. Not like saying if you have good taste or bad taste, just what your taste happens to be. Pretty much, like a lot of people who hate Lionheart, like will love are the people who think that um, the like the Ninth Wave is her best work, or who like her like just more, or like will like the Red Shoes a lot or something mm-hmm. yeah unfortunately kate has a lot of wonderful music and yeah th- this album i am really glad that i took a chance and i bought this album for less than 10 euros little lonely american girl wandering wow. into fnac getting this was in it france it was a cd and i still have that cd copy in fact i'm staring at oh it that's so right great now. i got an actual like cd copy of it and I listened. I really to that. want the vinyl because the artwork is so good. Did we talk about the artwork? Because the artwork oh. like encapsulates everything that makes this album so polarizing and ridiculous and wonderful. <laughs> like, I love so- the artwork on this album, and and especially like the the cover. Like the I that, don't. Yeah, that's what I. Yeah, the cover. <laughs> the cover is so iconic, and like, and all of it, and it was shot <laughs> like. It was shot in some in somebody's attic, and it kind of. I think of, her par- I think her parents. Yeah, and it looks to me like you look at that. You look at the the picture on the cover of Lionheart, and it. I almost get the sense of somebody playing dress up, and in a way, that's what she she's is, doing yeah. on this album. Yeah, like every song mm-hmm. is her playing the role of somebody else, and yeah, like but her yeah. her yeah, dressed totally. up as a lion. It's. It's the perfect, like, yep, this is what this album is about. This is Kate's, I'm going to go play dress up and tell all sorts of interesting stories. Yeah. <laughs> and with her, she's always so literal about everything. Like, for example, when she's, her dance routine's Rutherford Heights, when she says it's so cold, she does a shivering motion. Mm-hmm. It's like, it embodies, it's so, per- of course, for an album called Lionheart, she would actually pose as a lion because she takes everything completely literally. She like, you would probably, I bet like she's one of those people and I'm guilty of this where you said like, Oh, do you know the word literal is in the dictionary? Like, isn't in the dictionary. She'll be like, it isn't, you know? Um, (laughs) But, but 
Yeah, so so she's posed, she's in a lion suit. This was photographed by Gerard Mankiewicz, who did the infamous photograph of her around when the Higgins Tide came out, where she's in a leotard and her, you can see her nipples, and they were on billboards and buses in London and made her this big British sex symbol. So Gerard Mankiewicz did the album cover for this, and she's in, like, it's almost like, you know, like at Disney World, like the animal costumes with the heads. Like, she's basically wearing that with the lion head off. And her hair is, like, crimped to the 10,000. Mm-hmm. And she just, and she's looking into the camera just, like, basically with the look of a woman who does not give a damn what you think. You know? And I love, <laughs> yeah. and I love that. I, she's just, like, she is just fierce, literally, as a lion. She's, a, she's a, literally a lioness. With the, she, like, her hair is done to look like a lion's mane. And she is as feminine and high-pitched as her voice is. On that cover, she is fierce and just like, you can't mess with me. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess have- a cover that's kind of ass we made fun of. But like, again, it's one of the things where she does where it's so ridiculous that you're either going to just think, like, roll your eyes at it or just be like, you know what? This is so ridiculous. I'm just going with the flow. One of her most famous quotes is, it's not important to me that people understand me. So that kind of says it all. But yeah, I hope that uh, hope that everybody listening has definitely gained, gained a deeper appreciation of this album. You're talking to you and talking with other folks throughout this season. And it's plain, that, plain to me that actually quite a few people really do appreciate this album and Yay. agree that it should be talked about more. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And like, I'll just say anyone who brings Kate Bush albums and puts this last when director's cut exists. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just don't. You, you never understood Kate. You never even really tried. If you have a couple of favorite Kate Bush songs, or if you just have one absolutely favorite song that you would love to talk about on a future episode, or you know something about this week's song that we didn't get to, you can either email me, kbcast at linkmedia.com. That's link with an E. You can tweet at me, twitter.com slash strangekatecast. And you can also like my Facebook page, facebook.com slash katebushpodcast. We would love to hear from you. And we'll see everybody next week for the first Lionheart Era Tracks episode where we'll be talking about a rather obscure song. So it might be a shorter episode all about the song The Magician. See everybody next week. And also that way, like she can, she was able to, to really tinker at her own pace mm-hmm. and not have to like eat up studio time. I and mean, I've just f- from my own experience, um, one time I needed to go and get myself professionally recorded for a choir that I was trying out for in high school. And it was expensive just to do one hour of me yeah. singing acapella at this really mm-hmm. big studio. That was expensive. Well, and I can only imagine yeah. how much it cost back then, especially because now, when I went in in the early 2000s, he was using Pro Tools and it was all digital. And this back then, it would have been all to tape yeah. and that's expensive.
Well, that's why she ended up building her own studio when she made before she, to make Hounds of Love, because during the making of the dreaming, and this is described in Under the Ivy, the biography mm-hmm. by Graham Thompson, um, during the making of the dreaming, she kind of had to be a nomad and travel from studio to studio, and it was extremely expensive. So that's why she ended up building her own that she used from Hounds of Love onwards. Yeah. And now she has like her own recording studio in her home in Devon. I sh- yeah, I don't know the address, but one day. <laughs> <laughs> I only have to wonder though like how many songs other songs has she recorded and just not used since she's at her own studio she can do her own thing and she can release whatever yeah, she wants. Yeah, god. True. We'll never know. We'll never we know. never will. No. Cuz she's the kind of person who would be like Emily Dickinson who would be like burn everything when I'm gone, you know. Mhm. Including what supposedly there was a title track for Never Forever. But nobody yeah. can really remember what no it is. No one knows it. Uh, anyway. One day we will know. And no one can find these. Because the two songs that she recorded for The Kick Inside, basically like the first original ones, were The Man's Child's Eyes, another one called Maybe. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that are, were on the demo she submitted to David Gilmore, who submitted to EMI. But nobody can find Maybe, which is so sad because you every like everything else, from her jump from her, from her like un- unreleased stuff is available yeah. so interesting so yeah, back to <laughs> it's yeah as i would say with my if when my french students say let's get back to our sheep or let's go back we'll get back to our sheep yeah it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 